0: What keeps you going is the thought that you might find it. But when you actually found a guru, then of course, I don't know exactly how to explain it, but you just... After that, then it's a question of that anxiety and that quest is over, but then starts the process of meditation or of developing uh, the inner development, spiritual development, and that is a is another long journey. Uh, but, but once you know you're on the path... That's a great satisfaction. Then even if it's going to take a long time, it doesn't matter because you know you're going where you want to go.
1: Welcome to A Curious Yogi Podcast. I'm your host, Bobby, here to illuminate your practice as we discover what it means to walk the yogi's path. Together with wise friends and awakening teachers, we uncover the answers to our greatest questions. I'm so delighted you're here. Now let's get curious. Welcome back to the show, Curious Yogis. Such an honor and delight. To introduce this week's conversation with philosopher Madri Santanam Sondi. Madri is nearly 90 years old and this conversation comes from her stunningly gorgeous Nizamuddin flat in Delhi. Madri's life and story and worldview are completely fascinating and just to give you a little context of Where she came from and who she is, she was born during a great time of political and social awakening in India to an idealist lawyer and political father who was extremely well known and worked for an inclusive and liberated India. Madri spent her life as a wife and mother, but also as an independent research scholar. She has a master's in philosophy from the University of Edinburgh and diplomas from the universities of Oxford and London. She is a senior fellow of the Indian Council of Philosophical Research Not only did she have an extremely high-profile father, but she stood by her late husband, M.L. Sandi, in his celebrated career as academic, diplomat, and parliamentarian. Together, they worked for peace between Hindus and Muslims, the freedom of Tibet, including a six-decade friendship with the Dalai Lama, and published numerous writings. So today, Madri G. expresses the inspiration behind her life, her unending love for her guru, and her reflections during this phase of life. So without further ado, here's my chat with Madri. Madri G, you've lived such an extraordinary life. To me, you seem to be so settled and peaceful and highly aware. Would you say that you identify with the peacefulness that I see in you and probably other people as well?
0: I would uh, definitely say that after meeting Swami Shyam, that I have learned to be peaceful or become peaceful. Before that, it was something I I was also in search of. And uh, I also tried through different ways. As I told you earlier, I was educated in a Christian convent. I looked first at Christianity. And then I uh, took to philosophy. And I was always in search of something that would give some meaning and some attitude that would be peaceful and meaningful vis-à-vis the world around me, but the world in general. And uh, then, um, I, and I thought I would find it finally. I didn't find it in philosophy, and I thought it'll. Then I thought it must be in spirituality in India. So I came to India. And um, finally, after a couple of years, or maybe even shorter time, I was very, very lucky uh, to come up with my husband, Kulu and meet Swami and You know from the moment you meet him that this is it, this is what you've been looking for always. Mm-hmm. My husband also felt the same when he met him. Mm-hmm. So, in that sense, it's a fulfillment of some urge that I had from, from very young.
1: Can you explain that experience of being a seeker and then finally meeting your guru, your teacher, and just knowing with your whole heart that this is what you've been waiting for? Well, I I don't know how to explain it. I can describe it, you know, what
0: happened in the sense that um, I was, uh, in any case, um, to some extent familiar with um, the concepts of Hinduism, you know, they were not foreign to me. And of course, uh, I grew up in a Hindu household, and then my husband and I were very much interested in the Ramakrishna mission. We used to go regularly to the every week to the meetings and read a lot of the literature, Sri Ramakrishna and Ivedata Vivekananda. Um, sometimes I still read that because I find it very beautiful. But we were looking for a living guru, and I had been to Tiruvannamalai, I had been to Aurobindo Ashram, I had been to Calcutta, and so, but we wanted a living guru, and then now, how was it? I met Sharda as uh, at an international conference. I didn't know her from Adam. And uh, I didn't even meet her. I found her name after the conference in a list of all the delegates. And there was Rhonda Himes, International Meditation Institute, Kullu. I showed it to my husband and he said, let's ring her up. And, uh, you know, so I rang her up and got her number in Kuru, she had returned, and then she told us about the IMI, and then he just said, let's go. So we had to wait uh, a few months till his academic teaching term was over, and then we drove up. And so, right from the very first meeting with Swamiji in, in Patanjali Hall, at that time he called both of us to speak, and several others from amongst you to speak, and we just felt this is where what we've been looking for, and this is just it. It was a, it's, its a kind of uh, inner recognition and certainty, uh, which you can't explain uh, in words. You know, it's, uh, but it's—it's—it's—it's it's, it's, it's a dead sure. It's—it's complete certainty.
1: I totally know that feeling and that instant recognition. So did your life change at all after meeting your living guru? And how would you say that it influenced your spiritual life and just the way in which your life shifted from that point on?
0: yeah at that time of course i wanted to just uh, drop everything in delhi and just come and live in kullu uh, but my husband had many commitments there he had he had his academic commitments and he was also interested in politics so he was not ready to shift on a permanent basis though we would come up when we had uh, in the summer vacations so i couldn't um, so i so we just um, Continued with reading the literature and meditation and we would come up in the summer vacations to Swamiji, to the ashram and meet Swamiji. So I couldn't immediately do anything much with it other than just meditate and remember Swamiji and occasionally meet a few shams like I'm meeting you now and um having found the guru i was in search of a guru being in search and finding is two different planes of being right <laughs> when you're you're searching you you are on a search you do, haven't found it yet and you're what keeps you going is the thought that you might find it but when you actually found a guru then of course i i don't know exactly how to explain it but you just after that then it's a question of it, 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 that, that anxiety and that quest is over, but then starts the process of, of um, meditation or of developing uh, the inner development, spiritual development, and, and that is, a, is another long journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but once you know you're on the path, that's a great satisfaction. Then even if it's going to take a long time, doesn't matter because you know you're going where you want to go, you know you're doing what you want to do some people I when I read about others some people um, get there much faster maybe uh, you know so but I don't that didn't bother me too much. I th- thought that uh, whatever stage of development I'm at I'll go from there and I can't go any faster I shouldn't go any slower <laughs> so <laughs> So in that sense, it's given me, um, firstly, there were, now I'm much more settled, right? I'm much older. In the beginning, there were all kinds of problems which life throws at you, especially if you have a, like my husband had one foot in politics, and you know, when you're in this world, then there are so many things happening, and problems, and crises, and this, that, and the rest. so one had to weather all that, but having this Inner point of reference made it all so much uh, better. Well, that's an understatement. It sort of gave an anchorage. And that, that gives you, uh, that certainly gives you some st- stabilization and it gives you a calmness an inner calmness, not always, not that you can't get shocked by something or horrified by something. It gives you an inner stability. You can always return to that place, even if you're shaken from it sometimes. And it just made a change in my life. And one or two people noticed it also and said something to me. But um, yes, so it's it's been a huge change. And then since my husband passed, then I've been having more and more time to devote to this because it was really a lot of his activity would embroil me also. And then as you get older, you have less and less to do outside. Fortunately, I have people to help me to manage my daily life, so I have time. So I'm blissfully happy.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you definitely seem blissfully happy.
0: I think sometimes it's too good to be true, you know. And I think, how can it last? And what have I done to deserve this? And then, well, I can't answer the question. If something goes wrong, it goes wrong. And I just, uh, while it's there, it's beautiful.
1: Mm, Yeah, it's so beautiful. I loved what you were saying before about the different planes like once we know that we're on the path there's a beauty there but then another type of work has to begin like for example we were speaking about the intellect and how we have to purify and expand the intellect and the mind and the work that goes from there
0: yes 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 it's a it's it's um it's cultivating another uh part of yourself which you knew was there but nobody Had taught you how to get to it and what to do with it. It's like if you've never done physical exercise in your life, then somebody comes and tells you, stand up, kneel down, do something. So these were simple things which which one had never done because nobody had ever taught us to do them. So then one had well that's a slight exaggeration because if you grow up in this country you pick up a few things here and there. And since I had been we had been Um, people who went to the Ramakrishna mission and read all their literature and tried to practice it. So it wasn't totally new in that sense. Uh, But uh, Swamiji's um, method of meditation and his whole outlook was certainly very, very different from anything that I had seen before in this line, you know, so to speak.
1: Can you explain a little bit how Swamiji's teaching and vision is different especially for someone like me and listeners coming from North America, where we don't really have the guru culture, uh, Advait Vedanta, or no one knows who Sri Ramakrishna is.
0: Okay, I'll try and say, but you, you must remember that I didn't also grow up, except it was in the atmosphere, but I had a very westernized Christian education. So I knew much more about Christianity than I knew about Hinduism. And when I was at college in Bombay, then uh, there was no religion there. And then when I was years in abroad, and so I was, uh, <laughs> I had a lot of Scottish friends and knew a lot about Scotland and Presbyterianism and <laughs> things like that. They were not very religious people, of course, the Scots I knew. Uh, so to come back to your question, very different in the sense that here you're meeting a living guru. In the Ramakrishna Mission, their living guru was there, Sri Ramakrishna Paramahamsa himself, and he had some wonderful mm-hmm. disciples, but now we are meeting a third or fourth or fifth generation. They're all great people, but they didn't have that, they, they weren't Ramakrishna uh, himself, mm-hmm. or uh, even Vivekananda, they weren't even that, or the uh, many of the early disciples, Brahmananda, they were all great people. So. You were, what you were being getting from them was they were teaching you what they had learned, so they were like, um, not quite professors, but they were teaching you something that somebody else had said, and they were people who had meditated and who had. Uh, I'm, I'm sure some of them had great realization, but when when they address a, a crowd of people who come in on Sundays say, for to listen to the sermon, I don't think even Swamiji would talk to a lot of townspeople, if they just came on Sundays, then he would talk to them at some other level, you know, because uh, it's only to the intimate disciples who are with him on the path. So it was that kind of a thing. So it was, um, although my husband knew some of the swam, uh, Swamis personally, they all thought highly of him, um, and uh, but he was not uh, 100% satisfied. And for me, I hadn't gone into it as deeply as he had. So I was more. I had spent a little more time in the Ramana Ashram uh, in Madras before I married. As I said, I lived many years abroad, so I was far away from all ashrams. Uh, when I came back, I went to Tiruvanamalai. By that time, Ramana Maharishi was no longer there, but he had passed hardly a few years ago. So some of that atmosphere still prevailed, and there were some of his own disciples there, and it was wonderful to interact with them. So. If I hadn't found Swamiji, I might have drifted there, I think. But then uh, I got married instead, (laughs) so my life got uh, very much concretized in Delhi, and uh, then my husband went into politics, so that sort of revved up uh, things, as you can imagine. But still, uh, he would always start the day, he was a a great, um, I mean, he used to meditate, I never asked him what he did with it, but every morning without fail he would do his meditation and not go out anywhere either for a political meeting or to give a lecture anywhere without first doing his little meditation puja. So he was very deeply into that kind of thing. So when we heard, as I heard about Shardhan, heard about Swamiji, then of course, once we found him, the first instant you meet him, you know, this is it. You must have felt the same, I think, when you met him. You just get that, this is it. And I think it's so fortunate because, I mean, otherwise you could imagine a whole life knocking around and looking for a guru and not finding, it would be terrible.
1: Oh, yes, yes, I can definitely relate. It seems that you've spent a lot of your life not only contemplating peace and meditation as you're expressing now, but even in the way in which you and your late husband lived your lives, working for po- in politics and academia and within society to really bring forth a peaceful existence. Can you shed a little bit of light into what peace means for you? That is
0: true in the sense that since I always had this uh, Somewhere, an unformulated quest, uh, which took the form of a religious uh, thing or something else, later on philosophical. But the quest was always there, for truth and meaning. You could put it like that. Uh, I I won't use the word spiritual, though. I always went in that direction. I didn't know what it was exactly. I couldn't formulate what it was I was looking for. But I knew if I found it, I would know it. And that's as it happened. That was that was it. In the process of looking, of course, I had, uh, I I spent time in Scotland and I got to know um, something about the, uh, not only their spiritual feelings, but also since I come from a political background, I found their desire for independence and all that sort of thing, very very close to the Indian search for independence, so I could relate to the Scottish nationalists and all that sort of thing, who are now running the show, but at that time they were hardly a very small party. I th- but I, I, I didn't find exactly what I was looking for. I'm, I met people who were also, they were, they were Indians, they were non-Indians, who were also looking for something, looking for something spiritual, beyond Christianity for them, beyond traditional Hinduism for me. So um, And then sometimes some spiritual teacher would come to the city and then we would go and hear him to see what he's got to say they always had something interesting to say but i didn't feel so uh, completely drawn to anybody you know so it was really a search it was constant looking and then i met some friend when i went to oxford i got to know an indian couple there and they were they happened to be theosophists but at least they were meditators and and so at least with them i got a closer taste a closer experience of what it is to be with people who, for whom meditation is important, for whom spiritual life is important, um, and so th- that was um, that was very nice for me. And then, uh, so I was able when I and then when I came home, um, it wasn't long before I met my husband to be, and he was also deeply into meditation. Uh, through the Ramakrishna mission, but he was also looking for a living Guru. And in between, of course, as I mentioned, I had been to Ramana Ashram and I was very uh, taken with it there. And I was, I think if I hadn't met, as I said, I mentioned, if I hadn't met Swamiji, I might have ended up there. so anyway, uh, where I met my husband, he had similar desires, similar quests, similar interests. He had been much more with the Ramakrishna mission when he was young, but he was getting he was wanting something else, so he was looking out he was finding he, he had reached out to the Aurobindo people and to the Ramak- and to the Ramana people so uh, so his, his his movement was also in that direction. And as I said, once we met uh, Swamiji, thanks to Sharda, then we knew this is it. This is it. This is what we've been looking for.
1: The divine timing is so interesting, and I guess it is all divine timing. How would you say that this phase of your life now is indicating... Your spiritual practice—it's more contemplative time.
0: Well, I've been uh, the, my circumstances have allowed me to be that, because now I live here and I. Um, but since we met Swamiji, of course, that immediately started us on the on the pr- process of meditation, and we followed his method of meditation, uh, and then we never gave it up, uh, his method. So that was always there. Then we could make trips earlier, after my. <clears throat> Husband passed, then, then I stayed with it. I mean, it, I, I couldn't manage, I, I couldn't imagine living without it now. You know, it's so, such an integral part. So, it doesn't entail um, many changes in my actual physical life because I was, in any case, a vegetarian. I, I wasn't drinking. I mean, these were not problems for me or they weren't cha- great changes in lifestyle. But I think the great change was uh, that uh, you didn't spend your life just commenting on what was going on around you so socially and politically. Never stopped looking. I even today read the newspapers carefully and, and uh, I'm aware of what's going on. But at that time, uh, one was say more concerned with what is happening to India. Uh, you know, whether one can write about it or do something about it. My husband, in his case, it was doing something, my case was more writing. But we were concerned with the social and political development of India, which is almost very natural because we had been through the process when India was not free and then had achieved her independence, so it was all very exciting for us, you know. But Swamiji had also grown up in that atmosphere, and then he had given all that up, and then he had just taken to meditation. My husband didn't want to completely give up all that. Uh, I was ready to, (laughs) but I had never been as much politically involved as he had. In my case, it's more emotional and literary, in his case, it was something very rare. I keep talking about him because we were together and we did things together for as long as he was there. So I've become an I after he passed. Before that, we were a we.
1: But now you're getting to the real eye. Now I'm getting to the real eye. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: A little bit earlier, we were speaking about differentiating, even on the level of language, the difference between peace, which I guess is more relative on the relative field and oneness can you speak to that yes i i always thought that peace is inner peace
0: is something very individual which individuals can cultivate within themselves but i'll just say as a matter of interest is that my husband thought that it was possible for that inner peace to be connected with social peace and political peace he he actually believed it was possible of course he couldn't achieve it and you can't achieve it by yourself anyway you have to convince you know, thousands of people around you, and then everybody does it together. But somehow he had that idea in his head. Uh, And uh, I think once he tried to gently hint that perhaps it's not possible, he was not ready for that. So um, he always hoped for that. No, But I personally, I think there must be several people who are in public life who meditate and who pursue, and I certainly knew in the, In the Constituent Assembly, my parents used to meet them, and I also had relatives in the first Lok Sabha. There were always some people who did politics as well as were privately uh, very sincere and very deep meditators. I don't know about today, but at that time. um, And I think in the early days, you know, we used to think of Indian freedom was somehow tied up with her spiritual development and that she had been uh, suppressed by not only by a political power but by by a power that was trying to alter her thinking by introducing concepts of education and uh, development that were that was suppressing her own spiritual genius or whatever you want to call it so after independence politics meant more than just winning elections and and being important, and or even developing economically and other things. That too, but it also meant a rebirth of um, Indian spirituality. I think a, a, there were quite a few people in the Constituent Assembly and First Lok Sabha who might have thought that way. We knew several people there, but I wouldn't say that today. I mean, even if people say this is what we really are, I wouldn't believe them. But I may be wrong. I hope I'm, I'm wrong. wrong. So it was a kind of total... Reassertion of uh, whatever India meant to, and it doesn't mean that to all people, it meant it to some of us that India is, the, has been from ancient times. There have been the Upanishads, we've been since pre, uh, since uh, you know, BC, we've been meditating, looking at the stars, uh, trying to lead a particular kind of life that would generate more peace and, and not simply political peace, but an awareness and development and all that. Our literature is full of it. So that was very, um, that was the, the dream. I don't know whether people still dream that dream in politics, but we certainly dreamt it then.
1: <laughs> That's so interesting how your husband had that deep ideal for peace on the broader level. I'm curious how you would say peace and oneness are different or the same or integrated now that you've had this opportunity in later years to contemplate it for yourself in a more spiritual way.
0: No, I think, uh, I don't think we should uh, mix the two. If you're not at peace, it's hard to be one, or to have oneness, but it's not the same thing. The peace that we were, uh, there is such a thing as peace at a political level then there's peace at a social level then there's peace at an individual level but uh, oneness is beyond that i mean i know many people who are peaceful but they are not they they they're not meditators and and they don't uh, i i don't know whether they experience oneness because i haven't I can't get inside them to know but I given the way they talk and but they are they are peaceful they don't fight they don't get upset you know and I don't know what the source of the peace is some people i think are rebirth you've done something in your past life you're peaceful in this life so but what what my husband when he was in search of peace he was in search of because he had done a lot of reading in this area of peace studies at that time it was something fairly new especially after the two world wars there were a lot of thinkers in Europe, in the West, and everywhere in the world who were thinking that we don't want to go through this experience again. And so they were thinking of ways of peace, but not you. You could include in it international peace, which was very important, and peacekeeping, and all that sort of thing. But you can't do all that without having some internal peace also. You know, if you're an angry person, then you can't sit on a peace committee. You know, so it, it's an its a—it's a. But anyway, uh, that is how he was thinking, and I shared that. I mean, I, I thought that was a lovely, a beautiful thing to work for. And some of it had been there in in, in my own before I met him, also because uh, I think it was very much post Second World War. I was living in a Europe which had finished with the Second World War, and they said never again. Uh, you know, we don't want to ever to have that. That's why this Ukraine came as such a shock. Unfortunately, not yet developed into a world war, but it's frightened everybody. Uh, So there was this desire to look for peace. All right, when you start looking for peace, especially amongst my fellow students, there is always international relations, how to to arrange the world so that people don't need to fight, how to share resources so that people are not uh, unequal and all that. All that was there. But then it gradually leads on to, in the case of some people, to some inner in search as well, and that I I saw amongst my fellow students, I saw even amongst some of the most some of my teachers, some of my professors at the university. The last thing you expect to find is a is a is a down to earth Scottish philosopher, <laughs> you know, in search of peace. But sometimes you would find them. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I love the Scots, but they're not very spiritual people.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think peace on that level is such an important ideal. I believe and wish for that myself. But I also see that deeper peace that one is seeking is that peace everlasting. So when we as the seeker of peace can come to recognize that peace will not last on a political, world, societal, sometimes even familial level. It's so interesting and important time then for the seeker to go a little bit deeper, to refine the search, more subtle, more subtle, more subtle, more refined.
0: I I think I would... uh, I mean, as I've experienced the world and read history up till now, it doesn't seem possible. Um, But... We do, in a sense, have a more peaceful world than it was, say, 300 years back, in the sense that now we have the United Nations, we have international organizations, so we are learning to manage our conflicts. That doesn't mean now you have Ukraine in spite of everything. So conflicts do break out, but there is an international awareness all over the world that there should be less conflict, less armed conflict, less killing of people. Other competition is quite all right. You can compete economically in economic matters or cultural matters or whatever. But there is an awareness that because you have awful weapons of destruction, so if you uh, you drop an atom bomb or a nuclear bomb somewhere, the whole world is affected. It's not only that place. So I think they realize that. So I think that is changing. But I think what we are talking about at the, uh, at the spiritual level is not to do with that kind of... Um, war and peace, though of course that is the crudest expression of discontent. But to go into the the kind of inner peacefulness, that has got nothing to do with treaties and all that sort of stuff, and that helps to keep the place quiet. I don't think we can ignore politics, I don't think Swamiji ever ignored politics, I think he took a lot of interest, he used to listen to the news and everything. Because it, it creates it, it, it creates the conditions in which you can meditate or not meditate. I mean, if there are bombs raining all around you, you can't meditate. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, pretty, pretty advanced. Yeah, is yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah. the, the 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 old classics have stories about the odd rishi who could meditate in the middle of a battle, but they're very. I I have not met one.
1: <laughs> well, I definitely say you're an advanced meditator. Would you say that in your sadhana or in your spiritual life or even life in general, there's been a reoccurring theme or obstacle or point that's repeatedly come up that you've really had to work and churn to return to that state of peace and oneness? Yeah, I think so. I think, I mean, there are
0: so many things, not only one, uh, because um, certainly I'm not fully... Uh, realize soul but i would say that i mean say even take a thing like marriage or a family or children interhuman relationships intimate human family relationships can always create problems yes. and uh, an intimate relationship with another person with a husband or with a son or with a, you know an intimate sister even a mother father all these can create problems so then you do need a spiritual outlook to put them into perspective and to deal with them so i think that is very uh, very much relevant
1: yeah i loved what you said earlier about the spiritual practice being the anchorage to really ground us and keep us with conviction when the world and the relationships are so tumultuous sometimes it doesn't
0: stop the waves but you now you have something to hold on to (laughs) Yes,
1: yes yeah it's definitely true What advice would you give to your younger self, that young spiritual seeker, maybe you didn't identify as spiritual, with that young person seeking truth and meaning in your life? Because I'm speaking for myself, I know I'm seeking that. And a lot of other young people at this time, we are seeking truth and meaning, whether it's spiritual or not. Like, What would you say to that younger self?
0: If Swamiji was around, I would definitely say go to Kulu. <laughs> you know, but I myself, I've often asked myself this question. But obviously, my I'm not get like the Pied Piper of Hamelin. I don't have lots of people running after me. <laughs> so I'm now, you, you're the number one. <laughs> or I I would just off the cuff say that. We can't inspire everybody to go to Kulu. but uh, and especially now that Swamiji is not there, then you can't be sure. So, uh, I think if you meet somebody who's who's got a quest, who's asking questions, who's seeking some hints, I personally would probably give them literature to read, and of course I presume that they would already be In touch, they would already know the Gita, and they would already. But if they don't, then you pass that on to them also. And uh, if they develop some interest, then you can, uh, then you can ask them to go up and and meet. But first of all, um, and, and then you also have to be because I think a lot of people want a guru, and now in that kind, the first guru is not there. Now, if you make a guru of any of the others, I can't say which one. I'm not in a position, if Swamiji was there, I would say he's the guru. Now I don't know who the gurus are, there must well be 4 or 5 or more people, 20 people, 30 people. I don't know who can direct other people, who can guide other people, but I don't know them. And then you have to know them a little bit to be able to match the person who's looking to the kind of guru that he or she wants. Mm -hmm. At at this stage of life, I don't meet that many people either, Mm -hmm. because now I'm nearly 90. Right, so I don't meet new people. <laughs> so I just have these two sons of mine who are the young people in my life, and their kids. So a little bit when the when the grandchildren are here, sometimes you know they they find me because I not I, I also do um, the two or three times a week yoga classes with my yoga teacher, which is mostly physical exercise, but we also study the Brahm Sutra together, and uh, he's been a. He he nearly became a monk in his life. He even took uh, he wore sannyasans robe for two or three years, and then he walk, walked out of that. Uh, and but during that process, he studied in the Bihar school of yoga. Maybe you've heard about it. So he, he's a very good yogi, and so we study the Brahma Sutras together. So the children see me doing that, and then they say, "What is all this?" Because well, if they read the book, you can't make head or tail of it. I don't know if you've ever tried to read it. <laughs> it's a very difficult book to read on your own. Unlike the Upanishads, you can read some of that, but the Sutras are very esoteric. esoteric. At one session, we might do one paragraph or two paragraphs. It takes a lot of discussion and understanding. Uh, Until they express a real desire, either they face some life problem. Of themselves, their interests don't take them here. Take them to science or takes them to politics or takes them to art or something. But sometimes when you have a crisis, then you start looking deeper. So that's a great teacher, a crisis, although it's unfortunate that one should come through a crisis, but very often one does. So, uh, And then since I'm not in daily touch with them, you know, they're living continents away from me, if they were nearby, I think... Watching me talking to me like you are talking to me. Why are you doing this? Why do you read this? Why do you meditate? It, in the course of conversation, something would happen. But since I don't meet them, then it's uh... <laughs> so I'm I'm a very selfish person. I'm living here entirely for myself.
1: <laughs> selfish with the capital S, Madri G. Capital S, yes. So, what would you say is the most valuable thing you've done? Or rather, learned in your life. So I really
0: feel, in a way, I, I, I'm aware of the fact, if I may sound a little uh, pompous, that I have a few talents, but I feel I have to use them to any good purpose. I, I, I'm a, I, all right. I'll even be franker. I'm a nice person, right? I accept that. I get along well with people. I'm nice to my kids. I'm nice to everybody. But all right, so I'll be remembered as a nice person. That's not. What Swamiji said, I mean, there should be, at least that's something. It's better to be remembered as a nice person than as a bad person, that I agree. But so far as Swamiji's message is concerned, other than through my life, which people can come to me and say that you look calm and you look all right and you live by yourself, how do you do it? If somebody asks me that question, then I tell them. If they don't ask me, I don't tell them so i'm not a person who reaches out and catches somebody and says something to them mm. but if somebody asks me a question i answer
1: yeah but isn't that the same as Swamiji? he never reached out to anybody everybody always came to him for the answers uh, but <laughs> that's true <laughs> that's true
0: he didn't run after anybody but then he was uh, he was uh, i mean he was a fantastic uh, phenomenon i would say yeah. these days i'm I, I mean, I just listen into the satsang every day. That's the most important part of the day. And, and then I'm now not in a position to do much, uh, given my age and all that. And then I, my closest friends, whom I love very much, are not interested. <laughs> but um, closest friends in the sense that they are people whom I've known for donkey's years, before I met Swamiji and all that. Uh, so I have a capacity for friendship, mm-hmm. that much I know.
1: Isn't friendship kind of an expression of oneness?
0: Maybe. But then Swamiji didn't, didn't simply say to us, go and be friends with everybody. It is an expression of oneness. So I'm not denying that, that some, some of that... I mean, after all, why should I respond to Swamiji? Because it appeals to something that is already there in me. Not so well expressed, but latently there. That I, I admit, I accept that. But so far in my life, it's basically manifested as friendship, I would say. Has friendship, uh, and then that friendship doesn't necessarily entail people with whom I meditate necessarily. Sometimes I meditate more with people whom, with whom I'm not such good friends, but we our relationship is a, is a is a meditation one, a spiritual one.
1: Well, it all seems like a really elevated and beautiful place to arrive at like you were saying before that you must have done something in previous incarnations to have arrived where you are but for me as someone younger and looking ahead 50 60 years i see where you've arrived as the being who is one with yourself one with your guru as something to aspire to.
0: Probably you probably will. I think with age uh, and with experience, and you'll be, you will be—you will have meditated so many more years. I'm sure you will be far more advanced than even than I am. But I must tell you that when I was younger, I had a very—I—it's I, not as though I've always had a happy, peaceful life. It's come now. It wasn't always there. You know, in the process of growing up, you have all the problems, uh, psychological and this and that, and within the family, outside the family, at school, relationships, all that sort of thing. That's a good lot of disturbance before you finally get over
1: it. (laughs) Well, I'm really honored to just get to spend some time with you and have this day with you.
0: Well, I absolutely enjoy talking to you.
1: Oh, same, same. I have recently, well, in recent years, started to really appreciate the uniqueness and amazingness of connecting with other beings like yourself who have that mamukshetwa, that desire for freedom, which goes beyond any uh, classification of age or nationality or background, where when we have that real shared love for truth and meaning, that love of guru, that love of oneness, how the conversation the inspiration can just flow from there it's so incredible
0: absolutely absolutely absolutely
1: yeah I've
0: I say in my life I've always I, I've always liked to have good friends I mean I didn't go in search of friends but let's say my life has been defined by friendship and uh, whether I was at school or whether I was in, in the West in Edinburgh or whether I was anywhere I, I've always in uh, related to people at a person to person level which means friendship I mean some people go in groups and do things in the group I for me it's always friendship that has been part of my life an important part of my life very important so I value my I mean I've uh, I, I'm not in touch with all the people I knew but I've had lots of friends in everywhere I've been mm-hmm. I and and I remember them as personal friends. And if I were, if you were to read my my life story, it would be, you know, friendly with so-and-so and with so-and-so, met so-and-so in Paris, met so-and-so in Edinburgh, met so-and-so in Delhi, so-and-so in Murray, all
1: persons. I'm also similar to that, definitely. Are you like that? And And appreciate the intimacy of one-on-one interactions, where you have the chance to kind of meet person-to-person, being-to-being. Yes, yes. I mean that's been
0: the, the the most beautiful part of my life. When I'm happy, I'm happy because I'm I'm in touch with somebody. Well, not only that, but that's an important part of it.
1: Mm. Hmm. What are the other parts of a happy life? Oh, I um,
0: love nature. I mean, I, now I can't move around much, but I used to just love walking around. I, I mean, I, I loved it in Scotland. I could go out into the mountains and walk anywhere. And in Mar- and of course I grew up in the hills. Murray is even higher. Mar- Kulu is much is a small, low t- hill station by my standards, right? Murray was the highest, about seven eight thousand feet. Then came Shimla, and then Kulu. But Kulu, of course, had Swamisham, which outshone all the rest. But in terms of sheer, sheer Himalayan heights, um, I've lived up up at the top, so I just love that. <clears throat> and so when I went to Scotland, Scotland is much lower. I used to tell them your mountains they are hardly three, four thousand I would, they are our foothills in India <laughs> they used to look upon you know Ben Nevis and Ben this and the other <laughs> but compared to the sea level from which they went straight up they were tall they were high I used to write also I used to be asked to write maybe you know asked in school to write a composition I often used to write about nature and get good marks for it because it it, it, it just made me very happy mm-hmm. and then one could go for walks into the hills round about and there would be these little streamlets you know these little brooks bubbling away somewhere. I mean, I just found it enchanting. Now I'm remembering it and getting happy at the very thought of it. You know. <laughs> so after partition, I had to come, leave that school, and then went to Shimla. Now Shimla is not, for me, it was a, uh, not as beautiful as Murray, uh, but it was still the hills. They were still there. Of course, I developed some beautiful friendships with people of my age, and also with a. I must tell you about her. <clears throat> this. Uh, she was, a, a, you, know, you know what go well, you've been to Goa, right? So she was a, a, a Goanese a Christian, like there are many Catholics there. And, uh, but the, her family had settled in Karachi, at that time India was one, so there was no Pakistan. And then when partition came, uh, she was in India at the time, she was in our school, she, was, she wanted to become a nun, so she was a novice, our school had a novitiate. And she used to teach us geography. Mother Andrew. She was Sister Andrew then. And I just, firstly, I loved the subjects. Secondly, I became very, very fond of her. Very, very fond of her. She had a great sense of humor. She was very warm. She liked me too. And uh, so we got along extremely well. I did very well in geography. Naturally, if you like your teacher, you will do very well in it. Not simply because she'll give you high marks, but you, she just inspires you. Then she had to leave because she had, she was transferred to... Pakistan by that time, Pakistan, and then her origins were there. Then I met up with her, maybe 30, 40 years later. I had gone to Pakistan. Uh, uh, in, this, uh, in, the 20th, uh, in this century, it was uh, some, I don't know, I Forget forget exactly how I went, somewhere it was arranged. I landed up in uh, Pakistan, and I said, I have to go to Karachi, I want to meet Mother Andrew. I was mostly in Islamabad and uh, Rawalpindi side, but then I went to... And I was able to meet her. I can't tell you what how wonderful... There were these two nuns who made such a wonderful impression on me. One was this mother, Andrew. And um, why did I love her so much and why did she like me? I can't exactly explain it. Because she didn't try to convert me to Catholicism or anything like that. Um, uh, but she... It, it was just something about her personality that was very... Uh, alive and very positive and very I, I can't even explain it I, there's a spiritual basis to it but it's got nothing to do with Catholicism as such or religion as such, it's a kind of spiritual meeting almost mm-hmm. and it's something very real, I remember her till this moment with a lot of uh, love and affection what have I done to deserve all this I've been extraordinarily blessed with uh Lovely, with, with beautiful teachers. I mean, there's always the odd, horrible one, but it doesn't matter. You get, you know, I don't even remember them. And I, I, I've had, uh, I found Swamiji. Uh, and then I had a very uh, interesting husband. And I've had an interesting life and I've traveled all the things I wanted to do, I seem to have been able to do. What have I done to deserve it? Well,
1: you must nothing at all. Very deserving. There's something I must have done something in
0: some previous life. In this life, we've done nothing at all.
1: Perhaps it's inexplicable. That's
0: it that's is inexplicable. That's why I
1: guess yeah. we just leave it up to God. Yes,
0: I mean, you, it, it's inexplicable, absolutely inexplicable. Yeah. But I'm very uh, fortunate. Of course, one does uh, uh, have personal problems. I mean, sometimes, you know, you, you think something is wrong with you or people think something is wrong with you. So you have these little things and some people, you, uh, you can't get along with everybody. But on the whole, uh, especially now that I don't have to deal, and I'm just thinking I'm living in some sort of paradisal situation right now, and one one day, I mean, something could happen day after tomorrow, and this whole thing disintegrates, because that's how life is. It doesn't continue forever in one direction. But the day it happens, it'll happen. What to do? But I really, I can only say I must have been a very nice person in some past life to have Deserved all this? When when do these incarnations ever stop? I mean, there's supposed to be a time when you can merge into...
1: Yeah, you know, I was telling you, I recently listened to my satsang meeting with Swamiji, and in the talk he gave, he said that you've been waiting for incarnations to hear the truth of who you are, and it's kind of like, yeah, I don't know if there's more incarnations from here on out, but it kind of, like, stops mattering once there's such a clear recognition of the teacher and the path and the oneness that's underlying all. Yeah, you know,
0: he said something quite like that. I, I, I must get my old thing, it's on the other computer. He said something to me also because, I mean, he's obviously such an extraordinary being. He, he knew so much about everybody that he met uh, and all the people who are there without their having to tell him everything
1: yeah there's this inexplicability part that the mind just can't grasp in that same meeting i had with swamiji i said like i don't even know how i got here the stars aligned and like what does the stars align? it means like there's this power this animating power that the mind can't really grasp so it says the stars aligned swamiji said it was me who brought you here me being that inexplicable power So it's just like really interesting that the mind will never get it. And yet it's very much real.
0: You can't figure it out.
1: Because the mind wants to explain it, I could say, oh, I must have done something great in a previous incarnation rather than just like be in the inexplicable power. That's very true. And we have these
0: explanations because we need explanations. The mind demands an explanation. So we make up an explanation, but we don't know whether it's true or not. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Have you read, um, I think I might have asked you this last time, Shetna Feinstein. Have, have you
1: read her? I read her book and I also interviewed her for the podcast in season one. Very, very interesting and beautiful.
0: She and that uh, boyfriend of hers came trekking all the way. Yeah. It's amazing.
1: But it's so interesting. Like You could sit with anybody, whether they know guru or not, or spiritually identified or not. And there's just so much that the mind we'll never get, there's so much inexplicability in the whole incarnation, like, how can we ever comprehend with our little limited mind? Yes, yes. The in mind, mind.
0: The, the mind can't explain everything, no, no it well, has a particular stupid. function, it has a particular function. Unfortunately, in the modern world, it has tried to usurp the place of other things, you know, other, other ways of knowing. But but you're right. I mean it hasn't it hasn't managed to completely use up it, but it's trying to.
1: <clears throat> I guess that's why we just keep meditating and contemplating and stretching the mind a little bit and would you say in the stretching of the mind, you know, the mind is getting kind of absorbed in and in itself and then it there's no really need for an explanation?
0: Sure. Sure, sure. I uh the explanation is the last thing one is looking for when one is meditating one is looking one is one is trying to be in a particular state one is not looking for answers do you do you feel like that no well no one is looking for an experience yeah. not for a intellectual answer
1: no i think sometimes if i sit to meditate and i'm going through a particularly hard time i might be seeking some kind of easiness or answer. But eventually, the answer and the question kind of merge and the answered state just arises, but actually there is no answer.
0: But You mean by the answered state, you mean the state of meditation because if you have a particular problem, you may not always find the answer to that particular problem, even if you meditate. Mm-hmm. You may, but you may not. Mm-hmm. Have you had that experience? Yes. Yes, so it, it's because meditation is not meant to answer one's daily problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, because that one has been given a mind, one has to use it for some purpose, mm-hmm. <laughs> not for so. Uh, but I think it 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 puts you in a frame of uh, in a frame of mind using it, you know, not strictly speaking, uh, which enables you to take the right decision. It, otherwise, one is fraught and anxious. Mm-hmm. But if you meditate and you become calm and you're at peace with the world, then you can probably arrive at an answer to the problem that is worrying you. But it's not its not in meditation. It's the result of meditation that you're calm enough and capable of providing, finding your own answer or going to the place where the answer will be found.
1: Yeah, because a kind of clarity arises out of the meditation practice and then in that clarity, we're equipped to make a better choice.
0: Yes, because that, yeah, you're right. It, it removes that uh, anxiety and, and that clouds the judgment and that clouds the mind. So it removes those clouds.
1: Mm, yeah, it's quite powerful because it's always applicable. At any moment, at any age or any situation, we can always pause and meditate and receive that clarity like the benefits or the result of the practice like you said?
0: Absolutely. But then, I mean, if you're living in a place like Delhi, then I have to come home first and meditate. I can't meditate wherever I am. Um, sometimes my husband and I used to try that when, when we, you know, after we met Swami Shambh, we were all very enthusiastic. Sometimes we'd go to a restaurant and then we would, something happened, we would meditate there in the restaurant. And then people would, uh, well, they couldn't say much, but um, they used to think it a bit odd, <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I guess we all feel a little more comfortable meditating in the privacy of our own home. Well, I guess this is a perfect end point to our conversation, Madhuri. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it enormously. It's lovely talking to you. To yeah. Being able To meet somebody on the same wavelength and you can talk.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed what you heard, please leave a review. It really helps the show reach more people. If you'd like to have your greatest spiritual questions answered on the show, send them to me through social or email. And don't forget to follow on your favorite streaming platforms. Let's stay curious, connected, and keep walking the path together. Music graciously offered by Heidi Herdaya-Groschler. In oneness and delight, this is Bobby signing off. Until next time.